You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois in eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And as regular listeners of this show know, the emergence of the white working class is a key, as the key voting block. And elections has been one of our regular topics here. We're located here in the in the uh, Quad Cities region, in the heart of Obama Trump country, uh, counties where Barack Obama won twice and Donald Trump won uh, once or twice, where the white working class has played a major role in reshaping the political map in our region, but also in the Midwest region, which has played uh, the critical role in deciding presidents in recent years. My guest today is is an author of a new book who explores an important element of the white working class that really hasn't been examined in, in much depth before. And I think listeners are going to enjoy this book uh, from a variety of levels. It looks at uh, uh, the emergence of the white working class, especially in migration patterns, which I never really thought of. And and, and again, it's a groundbreaking work. He's Max Frazier, and the book is called Hillbilly Highway, the Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class. Uh, Max, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robin. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is uh, this is a great book. I, I really commend it to our listeners. You're an associate professor of history at the University of Miami, and my first thought was it's got to be Miami of Ohio. It's not. It's Florida. <laughs> which right. really, my first question is, in Florida, how did you uh, come to uh, look at this issue and decide this issue was worth exploring and then writing a, a very excellent book about yeah, well, thanks so much for those compliments. Um, you know, in truth, the, the project began before this job did. I was, uh, it really originated in my uh, graduate work um, as my uh, dissertation project. I've always, as a labor historian, I've always felt uh, actually quite in agreement with the framing that you gave to open this conversation, that the white working class has become an increasingly vital political block um, in uh, 20th century American history and its movement towards the right uh, has caused a great deal of, uh, has had wide ranging impacts in American political and economic history, has had major implications for the labor movement um, and uh, trying to unpack that history, <clears throat> the emergence of um, this white working class swing vote, this uh, emergence of uh, strains of white working class conservatism um, have been the driving um, questions in my historical research since I um, began my work as an historian. In, in fact, they're they're grounded in, in my the work that I did prior to becoming an historian, which was I, I worked as a journalist for a while and wrote about uh, the labor movement and the economy, um, and and did so with real interest in trying to understand 
the politics of the white working class in the in the uh, around the turn of the century. This was during the the Bush years that I was doing that work, and so um, uh, it was while reporting an article um, um, as a journalist that I first crossed paths with this major interregional migration of poor and working class white Southerners who moved up to the industrial Midwest during the mid 20th century. And I hadn't heard much about that migration experience and, and decided I wanted to write a book about it. And, and here we are. <laughs> Along the way, I got a job at the University of Miami, but uh, the, the interests predated it. <laughs> well, first of all, um... Describe the ge geographical contours of Trans Appalachia for for our listeners. We can't show a map, yeah. but uh, it it um, it it doesn't. I'll, I'll give a hint. It doesn't necessarily go over into Iowa for our Iowa listeners. But I still think it's worth uh, worth our, our friends from Iowa listening to this because I think there's going to be some important parallels. Yeah. So I mean, Trans Appalachia is really a term of my own invention. Not entirely. People, historians talk about Trans Appalachia in the uh, 18th century to refer to the part of the country west of the Appalachian Mountains. I'm not talking about that trans-Appalachian region, but I use the term to describe a geography that um, sort of connects the upper south, southern Appalachia, but not only the sort of mountainous Appalachian region uh, uh, in the southeast, but uh, uh, parts of the upper south that extend all the way to the Mississippi River. Um, and 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 then north into the uh, densely industrialized part of the country around the Great Lakes. Um, it was overwhelmingly people who came from uh, this part of the southern countryside, from the Appalachian Mountains in the east to the Mississippi River in the west, who um, moved north uh, during the first sort of two-thirds, three-quarters of the 20th century as the rural economy of that part of the country went through a series of um, compounding crises um, and uh, sought work in the, you know, the, the Rust Belt before it was the Rust Belt, when it was the manufacturing center of the um, you know, kind of steel and auto rubber manufacturing in the mid 20th century. So Trans-Appalachia, as I use that term in the book, is this sort of amalgam of the upper south and the manufacturing, you know, centers around the Great Lakes where so many people moved uh, back and forth. And, and, and when I say people, I should qualify. Well, I, the, my book is about white working people. Uh, obviously, this is a terrain that overlaps with the geography of the Black Great Migration of the same period of time. But uh, what I was really interested in writing about here is this less discussed, less recognized, simultaneous movement of poor and working class white people from the Upper South who moved across this geography of, of Trans-Appalachia. You know, this this hit home for me too, because I, I lived this to a small degree because I grew up in Chicago in the early 60s. And one of our neighbors, kids we played with, they were from West Virginia. Um, and I remember that. Um, they seemed like everybody else, but your book points out there's there's some differences and they kind of face some challenges um, along with African-Americans to some degree, which, which, which sounds, which was really an interesting facet of this book. Yeah. I mean, throughout this period of time, from the earliest uh, moments of this sort of major demographic event in the 
period right after World War One, when the first major waves of Southern white migration to cities like Chicago and elsewhere in the Midwest begin right through yes. to the post-war period that you're talking about in the 50s and 60s. You know, West Virginians, West Virginians in particular, to, to pick up on, on your connection, moved in great numbers uh, across the Ohio River to Akron, Ohio uh, in the decades between World War I and World War II, when Akron was the center of um, rubber uh, manufacturing in the world. Uh, you know, the three major American tire makers were based there, Goodyear, Goodrich, um, and Firestone. There's, it, you know, it is the center of rubber manufacturing in the world, and many displaced West, Virgi West Virginian miners and farmers or people who just want to make more money than they can in West Virginia moved to Akron and get jobs in the rubber plants. And they were um, uh, treated quite uh, viciously by their neighbors, by the people who they um, lived alongside, who, who feared that these West Virginians were going to take their jobs, undercut their wages, bring sort of alien cultural habits and tendencies. Um, uh, and and sort of corrupt Akron as a result. Native Akronites would use the term to describe West Virginians during these years, snake eaters, they would call them, or snake eyes. And it was this reference to this sort of urban myth that these West Virginian uh, mountain folk were so poor uh, in their homes that they subsisted off of snake meat, uh, right? Um, and... Um, it spoke to the 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 um, the prejudicial attitudes that greeted um, that group of people in that one um, town of, of Akron, but was broadly um, replicated in other cities across the region and, and really throughout these years. And so my book tries to try to understand what was animating those attitudes about uh, people who, you know, were not the most familiar targets of that kind of animus and prejudice. They weren't black, right? They weren't immigrants. Um, they were native-born white people, and yet they were greeted with a similar kind of hostility and and antipathy. And and that really was a critical through line in this in this multi-generational migration um, that I write about. Yeah, I, I, when I saw that, and, and you quoted some of the people saying they're taking our jobs, I, I immediately thought of uh, our the attitude toward immigrants now. And here these folks are uh, from the United States, just a different region of the United States, which is very interesting. And, and it plays to what you know we've had throughout our history, I think, uh, when Germans came in the, in the 1850s, this fear of outsiders coming in, no matter what they look like, I guess. But uh, what what are some of the misperceptions of this group that we've carried and you you um I'll, I'll admit i had some and you set me straight in in reading this which which is the i guess that's a characteristic of a good book uh where you learn more and kind of shape your own opinions but what were i mean there were some uh stereotypes what were the ones that were were off based on your research yeah, well, as a as a labor historian, primarily one of the ones that fascinated me the most, and that in a sense we're kind of take for granted in in conversations about um, the working class and the labor movement today, that white Southerners are sort of uninterested in um, 
labor politics unions are opposed to those kinds of political ideas have always resisted the intrusion of union organizers and um, and campaigns to organize themselves and improve their working conditions to join up alongside other groups of workers to you know kind of share common cause and advance sort of working class conditions in the country this is a kind of stereotype that i think is quite powerful um today um and has i think always been a tr uh, applied to um poor southern whites in one context or another throughout the the country's past. In very intentional ways, they were utilized during the 20s and 30s as a rationale for why Northern employers in these Midwestern cities wanted Southern whites to come work for them. They said quite explicitly, uh, you know, these um, hillbillies, right, they're desperately poor, they'll work for whatever pennies we give them. Um, they're, they're not going to be um, um, drawn to these foreign ideas of anarchism and socialism and trade unionism they don't they're going to have as kind of traditional anglo-saxon protestants bible thumping 100% americans they're going to identify with their bosses not those labor radicals in the factories that have been causing us um, so much trouble and for this reason uh northern employers uh, actively recruit Southern white poor people in the Southern countryside during these years to come work in their factories. Um, and what happens is in the 1930s, when there's the great wave of uh, industrial uprisings across the Midwest, the sit-down strikes in Flint and Akron and Toledo, Ohio, and other parts, when the, when the modern industrial labor movement is really birthed in the Midwest, um, rather than standing outside of that or arraying themselves alongside their bosses and against that um, emergent labor movement. What, what you see in the historical record is that white Southern migrants join eagerly and actively alongside their coworkers um, in, the, in the causes to uh, fight for the right to form a union at the workplace and uh, negotiate over wages and benefits and, and create the modern American labor movement. Um, uh, it's a great irony of the hillbilly highway, uh, right? This, this term applied to this migration um, in all sorts of confusing and problematic ways, but it's a great irony that many of these Southern migrants were first recruited um, to come North as anti-union um, um, scabs, right? And what they end up being is union leaders, stewards, shop floor activists, militants even, um, and uh, confound that stereotype of their, their political attitudes and behaviors that was right there at the origins of this migration. Uh, and you're right to say I try to address others of these migrations as they, uh, uh, stereotypes, excuse me, as they were applied to these migrants in in their neighborhoods, in their uh, that they lived in, in the cultural life that they brought with them, and um, their political attitudes in other contexts. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is author Max Fraser. He's a author of a new book called Hillbilly Highway: The Trans Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class. 
Max has been talking a little bit about the book here. We barely scratched the surface, and there's so much in here that's interesting to me, and uh, it directly relates to our modern politics and the role of the white working class in shaping elections now, which is very important in our region. Um, you use the term um, irony, and I, I, so many times, especially in the latter half of the book, I saw where you're pointing out paradox, irony, over and over of what you found here. What are a couple others that really stood out to you? You just mentioned one, um, how strongly the, the uh, trans-Appalachians were involved in, in the trade union movement. There were several others. Uh, if you could just take a couple minutes and explore those as well here. Well, well, one story I tell at length, and I think it in many ways has the most um, clear political resonances in our current moment is the way in which um, during the 50s and 60s, when say you were growing up in Chicago, um, there was this uh, growing concern amongst um, liberal municipal governments and policy professionals within the Democratic Party in particular about, you know, the, the rising uh, evidence of poverty in the heart of the um, urban context of the of the American city. This was responding to the early signs of what would become the post-war urban crisis. And in this moment in the 50s and 60s, though we don't often recall this, uh, municipal governments and others were, as they sort of tried to make sense of the 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 ghetto, the, the post-war ghetto and its and the populations that found themselves there, they would often speak of alongside the black ghetto, the more familiar uh, neighborhoods of inner city poverty during these years, the hillbilly ghetto, and that term would be deployed by public officials and, and in media accounts throughout this period of time to describe neighborhoods like Uptown in Chicago, the sort of most notorious um, hillbilly ghetto in Chicago during these years, where uh, a growing population of poor Southern white rural migrants seem to just be languishing in um, neighborhoods that were sort of exhibiting high rates of unemployment, poverty, uh, poverty-related medical issues, high incidences of crime, the classic sort of defining characteristics of, um, of inner city poverty, right, during these years. The preoccupation with the hillbilly ghetto would actually, in many ways, catalyze uh, liberal concern with and, and programmatic policy ideas about how to address urban poverty in this moment. And it's a long sort of political narrative, which I won't try to unpack or, or synopsize here, but it um, uh, there was a great concern with these poor white ghetto dwellers that liberals observed in these hillbilly neighborhoods in the Midwest during these years. But something would then shift over the course of the 1960s and 70s as um, political ideas about why people uh, were poor, what made them poor, what it had to do with their culture and increasingly their race became increasingly powerful at, at determining ideas about sort of liberal policymaking and liberal ideas about what to do about sort of economically marginal populations of one kind or another. And over time, poor uh, and working class white uh, Midwesterners and Southerners 
would become increasingly invisible to mainstream liberalism, even though a great preoccupation with them and with their struggles to uh, advance in post-war society had sort of catalyzed this liberal reform uh, moment that would sort of culminate with Lyndon Johnson's great society and the war on poverty. Uh, increasingly, the, the white poor, the white working class would sort of be only a kind of um, uh, a kind of culturally alien um, outsider population to um, liberal politicians who became increasingly focused on new and growing sectors of the economy, on urban areas, on the along right along the coasts, uh, the post-industrial economy, and and supporting policies that would help develop. Um, new kinds of work and, and economic activity. I think the consequences of this irony, of this uh, movement from hypervisibility to invisibility or marginality for the white working classes and working poor is one reason why right-wing demagogues of various kinds, from Reagan to Trump, have had so much success planting the seeds of populist resentment in, in these left behind communities, these communities which for a time were quite central to the liberal political imaginary, but then receded almost entirely uh, from it by the end of the 20th century and, and into our, our present moment. Um, and, and the consequences of that have been the, the rightward turn, the more, the more sort of conservative political inclinations of that portion of the of the electorate. You spend a lot of time in the book, um, and I'm glad you did because it was one of the most fascinating aspects aspects of the book on the the place of country music. Um, and I, for our listeners, if if you're not interested in the political aspect of this, just get the book for the, for the exploring the country music part because I find it fascinating. Um, I, I want you to just kind of in, in, in kind of briefly encapsulate that that chapter where you talk about country music and and uh well I'll just I'll just let you go. I don't want to take too yeah, much time that's fine. talking. Country yeah, country music is central to this book. As some of your listeners might know, Hillbilly Highway, in addition to being a regional nickname for this migration, is the name of a song off of uh, the country musician Steve Earle's debut album, which um, I, I talk a little bit about in the book and really does a, I think, extraordinarily good job of capturing the, the uh, experience of the migration, the sort of um, uh, strat, the, 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 the existential kind of um, class experience straddling a feeling of mobility and marginalization that characterized life uh, for white working class migrants in this region um, over many decades. So um, I'm very uh, inspired by that that song and 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 country music's ability and perhaps singular ability to capture the emotional and um, cultural resonances of this um, population of people, uh, of working class people as it, um, moves along the highways of um, mid-century American industrial society. You know, country music, 
perhaps is the clearest example of the long-term impacts or one of the clearest examples of the long-term impacts of this migration. Prior to the great migration out of the white South, country had been a largely uh, uh, a music that was listened to in a relatively narrow geography, right? It was a music of the rural Southeast, of the uh, rural white poor of the Southeast uh, overwhelmingly. I mean, it had influences in other ways. I don't mean to say it was invented by that um, a population group per se, but it's uh, listener base, it's audience was very narrowly um, limited in that way. In fact, for much of the first half of the 20th century, what the official trade publications, Variety, Billboard, the, the official organs of the recording industry, the entertainment industries, the term that they used to refer to country music records uh, uh, was hillbilly music. That was how those records, those singles uh, were cataloged in music stores and, uh, and their uh, sales were tracked um, in industry journals that followed them. So it was the music of a population that was uh, that was understood to be what the hillbilly was understood to be, the, the poor country folk of the white South. And what changes that, what makes hillbilly music country music, right? This major terrain of American mass culture of, of one of the, the most dominant uh, forms of popular culture in American life is the migration out of the out of the rural South of millions of, of poor and working class white people who go to the Midwest, who of course also go to California and the Southwest during these years, uh, and bring their radios with them and buy records where they live and um, carry this regional music with them and, and in the process nationalize it. Um, in doing so, the music changes, though, and I try to understand what drives that change, how a music that originated very much as the music of everyday life of a particular kind of working class population, how its political resonances, cultural resonances, class inflections change as it becomes not only the music of the white poor and working classes, but of the suburban middle classes uh, in Chicago and the Quad Cities and elsewhere, right? As yep. as increasingly it 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 transforms itself to meet a widening listenership and and a widening regional geography of sales and and radio play and all of that, um, and and loses, I argue. Um, and, and maybe I'll convince some readers about this, maybe I won't, some of its more critical um, uh, implications, critical of, of um, industrial society, critical of um, um, uh, capitalism and market relations and the way that the, the, the destructive effects that they had on, on people's lives and particularly um, working people's lives that I think you can hear in especially in earlier country music, but that becomes more muted and, and harder to sound as the, uh, as the genre changes along, the, along these highways, along these migratory pathways that I, that I trace in the book. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, Max. Uh, I, I had a couple more questions, but we'll just, I'll leave it this way. If you're interested in this, get the book. It's really interesting because you talk also about the role of nostalgia in Nashville sound music 
longing for a place that did not exist and the political impact. I mean, we'll just, I, we got to leave you kind of starving for more here. Uh, if you want to learn more about that or other parts of this, go get the book. You'll really enjoy it. Um, my guest today on Heartland Politics was Max Frazier. He's the author of Hillbilly Highway, The Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class. Uh, outstanding book, Max. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be my guest today. Thanks, Rob. I really enjoyed talking to you. Listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.